0: Welcome to The Social Business Hangout, featuring Robert Levine, your social business mentor. The Social Business Hangout podcast series is available on iTunes. This podcast was recorded in Brantford, Ontario in front of a live audience. Welcome, everybody. This is The Social Business Hangout, and with me today is... Sid Bolton. Now, Sid, you've been on the show numerous times. We've talked about everything from Star Wars and Star Trek to Santa Claus, to PCs, to video games. And we're going to kind of go from that video game world into video game arcades, the arcade game years. But more importantly, you've also just released a new book on Dragon's Lair, your favorite arcade game. And we're going to get into that in a bit. But I want to kind of go back to the genesis of arcade games. Most people think of the beginning of games as Pong or whatnot. But I'll be honest, for me, it was going on a bus and you know waiting in between two buses, and there's this little magical place that you get to walk into with quarters and play games that you would never be able to play at home. Your thoughts on what made arcade games and arcade game locations, if you will, what they were? Well,
1: first of all, the original arcade machines were interesting because... They were inside of cabinets, and they often provided things that you certainly wouldn't find at home at all. So, for example, uh, many of the early racing games had steering wheels. Uh, some of the football games had these huge track balls that you would play on, and... Uh, They always provided a different physical experience uh, than what you could get at home, and in fact for a long time you couldn't get any arcade-type games at home. And then of course when things like the Atari 2600 and the ColecoVision and all those uh, consoles came out, you know, it was kind of neat because you could have them at home, but the thing was is the arcade machines were always so much better. Uh, they were just they were more advanced, they were more expensive machines, they were just really, really cool. And the other thing that the arcade provided, it was provided a place for kids to go that wasn't home. So if you wanted to not be at home, what better place to be than at an arcade? It was like a hangout. It was kinda like the way a lot of
0: coffee shops are for teenagers today. Mm-hmm. As you say, the Internet Cafe of the modern era was the 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 arcade game studio or what would we call it? it was, just arcade game room or
1: just the arcade.
0: Right? Just the arcade. Yeah, just exactly. the arcade,
1: hanging out in the arcade.
0: Now that evolved initially from the pinball era game, I would suspect, because even even now you still have a lot of pinball games. But you brought up a key point there. It's almost like the movie theater. Why would you go to a movie theater when you can see the same movie at home? You got the big screen, you got the atmosphere, you know, even racing games, as you see, as say, see now, you've got the ones where, you know, the seat actually moves, you know, the jet fighter ones where the, the jet actually moved up and down while you were playing. Yeah. Those, you know, those were like four or $5,000 units. You could not put that in a household. No. And I mean, really, for one
1: single game, you know, you'd probably get sick of it after a couple of weeks. So it's not the kind of thing that you would, uh, really invested. It just didn't make a lot of sense. So, yeah, the arcades provided a couple things. They they had that unique experience. They had a lot of sounds. They had, uh, in a strange way, for people that were into that kind of thing, they also provided somewhat of a social experience that was a little different than what a traditional social experience might be. And a lot of times the people hanging out in the arcades were perhaps a little socially awkward. Uh, Not everybody, but uh, it was kind of interesting, and especially when Two-player fighting games would come out, uh, like Street Fighter, and you would walk up to a machine and you'd put your quarter on the machine. There was sort of a whole uh, unspoken etiquette that uh, came out with arcade machines, and of course, a lot of times you would then play against somebody. Uh, this is long before we had, uh, you know, online co-op play or online, uh, you know, network play, playing against someone else, and it was a lot of fun. It was just a lot different, you know, and it was like uh, it had its own. Uh, I can almost, you know, say it had its own ambient sound. So if you think Mm -hmm. about all the different machines you would hear in the background and you'd hear a combination of pinball machines going off and arcade machines making their noise and, of course... All of the arcade machines had what was called an attract mode, and the attract mode would play and it would sort of be saying, please feed me your quarters, come and give me a try, I'm a fantastic game. And oftentimes, the attract mode showed a lot of the gameplay, it often showed someone actually playing the game for a brief period of time, and other times it showed you other things that sort of gave you a promise or a hint as to what you would find later on in the game. And so all those things would make sound. So even in a very quiet arcade where nobody was playing, there was a lot of sound going on. Mm -hmm. And it was a certain type of noise pollution. And, of course, some of them also provided uh, food and stuff like that. And they evolved into things. I mean, if you look at what Atari founder Nolan Bushnell did, is that he actually came up with a, a lot of the stuff. He came up with the idea for Pong and all that. And he evolved into Atari, into a big video game company. But then when he left Atari... Uh, he founded Chuck E. Cheese, and there's actually Chuck E. Cheese still around today, and his idea was, you know, why not take this idea of all these arcade games and then combine them with food and pizza being, you know, one of the, the kids' favorite,
0: into a real fun family place, and that's what uh, Chuck E. Cheese was all about. Well, you also had, to your point, taking that analogy a bit further, in the old days of arcade games, you know, you'd put in your quarter and the best you could hope for was maybe top of the leaderboard or, or beating that one person that you have been meeting to beat, but when they Brought it into that Chuck E. Cheese world. You also got that entire, you know, ticketing thing that you would get from playing it. So you had that ability to reward yourself, whereas in the old days you really didn't have that. That that one two, no. if you will. It was very much a "give me your money" kind yes. of thing. Yeah. The the idea of the redemption game.
1: Uh, I'm not sure who brought that out exactly, but that really changed things quite a bit for uh, places like Chuck E. Cheese. And and what it did was it it made. The kids who perhaps weren't as successful at some of the games, uh, it allowed them to play other simpler games. And yet, when they got tickets back, it inspired them to be better. And then, when they could actually turn those tickets into toys to take home, well, then it was really fantastic. I mean, you know, you're forgetting the fact that it might cost you like forty or fifty dollars to buy a little, you know, three dollar stuffed toy. But obviously, you're going to have fun doing it, and your kids would have fun doing it. Well, it's
0: very much like that carnival those carnival mm-hmm. games, A, they're rigged. And let's be honest, most arcade games were rigged for you to just put more money in because most of them really... You know, what was it? Uh, King of Kong, uh, the, the, the documentary. You know, there's a game that, that had a, a natural end. Well, it wasn't unnatural. It was truly an abort. Yeah. But the game just got harder and harder and harder. And most yes. of those games just got faster and faster and faster. Yes. You know, but there was another style of game where the, it was story-based, yeah. Okay? and you wanted to get to that point in the game so that you could put more money into it so you could continue the story yeah. and I think that leads us into uh, the evolution of something like Dragon's Lair which I think was, you know, it wasn't your traditional um, uh, fire and shoot or anything like that it was very much a strategic learn the moves type of thing
1: yeah, it was, and it, it it actually has a lot of firsts in the industry, and you'll you'll find out. I have I have this this book about it that I, because I love the game so much. But um, when it came out, the sort of top of the line graphics at that time were still Pac-Man. Pac-Man was still very popular in the arcades, and also the number one uh, earning game in the arcades at that time was a, a racing game called Pole Position. Mm-hmm. And Pole Position was a very very good game, a nice racing game and but it was still definitely computer graphics you know it was uh not as good as say a super nintendo but it was kind of more along that era and and that line in terms of quality and when dragons Lair came out it provided full screen animation and not only was it full screen animation it was a cartoon and more importantly it was a cartoon that was done by don bluth who was an ex-disney animator and produced the most beautiful looking stuff you'd ever seen on screen and You know if you think you know disney animation is beautiful you're going to get that same idea when you watch this stuff even though it wasn't uh directly disney a lot of people looked at it and thought it was disney uh just because it was so good and it's one of the reasons why dragon's lair has continued to be something that is very successful and endeared to this day a lot of it has to do with the animation so Basically, this laserdisc technology, which had actually been out for a couple of years, but never in an arcade before. So
0: this was the first laserdisc well, game. Well,
1: it was it was actually, you know, technically to say it's it was the first laserdisc animated game. It was uh, actually the second game released uh, that came out. There was another game uh, that was called Astron Belt, and it actually came out uh, a little bit fo- before uh, in Japan. But, uh, and I, I think in Europe, but it never uh, got to North America. Dragon's are actually got to, to North America first. And Astron Belt was a little different because it used uh, real-life footage on laser disc of mountain scenes. And then it overlaid computer graphics on top of you controlling a ship and you would have to shoot and stuff like that. So it was quite a different style of game. Um, But certainly, uh, Dragon's Lair was the first uh, animated Laserdisc game, and really the first game that most of us ever saw of its type anywhere.
0: And it completely changed the way we thought about video games. Well, even the audio soundtrack, yes, the the, the graphics were stunning, as you say, very much animation, but the, the voice actors and the music and stuff like that, really stood out from the other games that were playing at that time, that which were, let's be honest, more bing, bing, bing. and you know. Yeah, and in fact, uh, one of those firsts is that Dragon's Lair is
1: the first uh, video game to use or- orchestral music. Mm-hmm. So that right there gives you an idea how different it was from everything else. And Chris Stone, who did uh, the original soundtrack and would, would do the other soundtracks as well, he actually, I'm not sure how old he was when he did Dragon's Lair. He was certainly uh, a bit older. But this guy wrote his first uh, movie soundtrack when he was 11 years old. Mm. Like an uh, absolutely talented uh, musician. And, you know, that music still sticks with me today that's in Dragon's Lair. It's pretty amazing. And they did not have a lot of cash, though, when they were doing this. And so the voice actors are actually people that worked on the production. So that's kind of interesting, although uh, Michael Rye, who unfortunately just recently passed away, uh, he did the, uh, the attract mode, the voiceover, the introduction to the game, and uh, he was a professional voiceover artist, but uh, Dirk himself was actually the sound editor, mm. and uh, Daphne
0: was portrayed by uh, someone who was actually doing the animation. Now, for someone that's never played the game, and I kind of want to use you as an example of this. You walk into the arcade for the first time, and all of a sudden you see this game that's not asking for a quarter. It's asking for 50 cents, which was unheard of at the time. Yes. You know, this is the days where you actually have to put real money into the machine, not tokens or whatnot. You see this thing, your reaction, your first time playing it, if you will. Well, I can almost
1: remember my first time playing it. I walked into uh, Subs and Spuds in the Dunstan Plaza in Brantford, uh, which is no longer there. And uh, I remember just being amazed by the sound, first of all, because the sound is what you get walking in. And then all of a sudden, it's almost a whimsical, magical kind of sound. And then you start seeing what's happening. And basically, the scenes show this night who is in all kinds of perilous situations. And you kind of get a pretty good idea right from the beginning that he's got to rescue the princess. So, of course, it's a classic story of, you know, there's a damsel in distress and you have to rescue her. But it's all set in a castle, which, for me personally, I don't know what came first, my love of medieval stuff, or if if dragons are actually, for me, precipitated a love for medieval stuff. But I can tell you that today i love that kind of stuff i love castles i love dragons i love knights i love all that stuff
0: and that game had it all
1: and it had it all and i and i almost think that my love of that stuff stems from my love of the game and that sort of creeped into the rest of my life because i don't remember really liking that stuff beforehand but i certainly did after and uh, you're right it was 50 cents which was uh, unusual most arcade games back in the day would cost the operators about twenty five hundred dollars and uh, and then, you know, they would earn their money back one quarter at a time and then after a certain number of plays, of course, the machine would be paid for. Dragon's Lair uh, cost those operators uh, just over $4,000. Mm-hmm. So, sort of an industry wide decision was made, we have to charge 50 cents for So this it's game. basically costing us double, therefore we're going to have to charge double. Charge double, exactly. Uh, and of course, like a lot of things, it wasn't quite double, but it was certainly uh, pretty expensive. So, In a way, I think that ended up making the game a little more interesting because it's like, this game is so good, you have to pay double. Mm. Um, Now, having said that, it also turned away a lot of people. And not because of the price, but rather because when you put your 50 cents in and you start to play, what happens is, is that an animated, beautiful cartoon unfolds in front of you. However... Um, without much warning, uh, you have to actually make decisions Mm -hmm. with the joystick uh, as to whether to move Dirk left, right, up, down, or use the sword button. So there's really only five possibilities. The problem is is that you're not 100% sure when to use which possibility, um, and uh, you kind of have to guess at it, and then of course you have to get the particular direction correct. So there's usually clues. Sometimes there's actually uh, clues that are bad, that are wrong, that are there on purpose to mess you up. But honestly, you don't have a lot of time to look at the clues anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, The gameplay is fairly fast. Now, a lot of people would say the gameplay wasn't that fast, and Space Ace is actually even faster. Um, But yeah, you basically, uh, you know, just imagine a scene where, uh, you know, for example... um, there's a scene in the beginning of uh it's it's not wasn't out in the arcade versions, but there's a sort of a special scene that you see on the home versions now where Dirk is walking into the castle and he ends up on the outside on the bridge and he falls through a hole and all of a sudden there's all of these snakes that come after him. And so what do you do? Well you have to hit the sword button before you have you can't hit it before he falls down and you certainly can't hit it after they've completely engulfed him. So you have to get it just in that time window and hit it, and and then he will do the action. If you don't do it, then the laser disc, and this is the key about the laser disc, the laser disc allowed for random access of the video. Mm-hmm. So, And one of the things that really made Dragon's Lair successful was all of the death scenes. So what would happen is if you didn't hit that sword button, the snakes would come and they would engulf themselves around Dirk, and they would squeeze him, and he would uh, 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 or whatever, and he would look have this funny look on his face as he was you know basically taking his last breath. Um, that might be one death sequence; some of the death sequences, like every particular scene, often had multiple death sequences. And many of them were quite funny. I mean, if Dirk you know, missed something or he fell off a horse or he did something, it was quite humorous. Uh, even him falling off things was just was great. And I, I really do believe that people enjoyed the game because even though they were losing a life, they were losing their money, really, uh, they got rewarded with kind of a humorous death sequence. And some of the less successful um, things that have come out of the Dragon's Lair franchise over the years, one of the key things that's missing are those death sequences so uh, yeah and
0: then that's so all basically you get works. the worked. frustration at that point
1: yeah exactly you just die and that's it um, but uh, that's how it works and so later on and the term wasn't coined until uh, later with I believe the game Shenmue uh, which came out in the Dreamcast but the, the term quick time events is thrown around the, the video game industry quite a bit today and if you do play a modern game uh, the latest Tomb Raider is an example uh, The Last of Us from Naughty Dog another example all of those games and especially God of War God of War kind of brought this back, they have these quick time events in the game which basically allow the player to hit the right combination of buttons on the controller in order to continue with the game. While most games only have that as a very 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 tiny element uh, in order to bridge different uh, parts of the storyline for the player to still have them feel like they're involved rather than just it playing out without any interaction. In Dragon's Lair the Quick Time Events—that's the entire mode of
0: gameplay throughout the whole game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things. It was one of the, f- if not the first game in an arcade that had that style, because you know the the other one that I could think of would be like a more mor- uh, uh, Mortal Kombat or something like that, which is all you know key executions, and moves, and whatnot. You were introduced to a game where in you would be used to just moving a character around or sh- ship side to side or whatnot, and literally you'd be dead within thirty seconds of playing the game because you, didn't, you, you, you needed to reacclimatize to the game itself. Like I remember losing a lot of money before even getting into the game purely right. because it was such a, a shift in gameplay and it got to a point where now it was all about who do you know that's played it and, and it was a random thing as well because not all the scenes were sequential, right? Sometimes right. it would go from this room to this room to yes. this room and you'd play it the next game and you'd be ready for it and then they'd throw you a new room into the mix and you're yeah. like, well, oh, what do I do now? And not only that, but uh, one of the things that they did to save money... I mean,
1: the development of the game is a whole other interesting thing... ...which you can read about in my book. Um, but one of the things that they would do is they would actually mirror some of the scenes. So as soon as you got it memorized what to do... ...they might show you the same scene, but they flip it left to right. And so the up and down moves are the same... ...but the left and right ones have now been mirrored. So you have to memorize which is which. And also sometimes in some of the scenes... The scene looks so similar when it starts up that you have to know where the visual clues are in the room to know what the first move is. Is it left? Is it right? And so um, I will point out that all of the scenes have those clues. But unless you know where to look for them, unless you've played the game enough, unless you've invested a lot of time and a lot of money into it, you will not have a clue as to which is which. Now, the newer versions of the game, like for iPhone and things like that, they give you a visual move guide if you want it. So they've made the game much, much easier uh, because a lot of people got frustrated. Mm -hmm. They got frustrated with not being able to know what to do. And like you said... You'd have to know somebody, and it's not like they can watch another player around them today on your iPhone because you're not going to find somebody just randomly that knows how to play the game. At least in an arcade, you could probably find somebody who had lost as much money as you but maybe got a little bit further. And so that actually became a source of pride for a lot of people, including myself, back in the day. I could complete the game. And people used to stand around me and watch me
0: play, and they were just shocked. Well, it almost became, you became the entertainment for that room, because Mm -hmm. A, it was a fairly large display, you would always have the crowd around you, but you kind of hinted to it, there is a perfect game in Dragon's Lair. Yes. Uh, Without obviously going through every single room or not, describe what we mean by the perfect game. So, the way you get a perfect
1: game in Dragon's Lair is you play the game on one life, so you don't lose any lives, get to the very very end which is no spoiler here it's the dragon's lair and uh the very very last move there's a little spoiler here happens to be a sword press which will kill the dragon that's the last move that you make so what you do on your first life is you play all the way through to the end but you do not press that sword button at the end you just you let yourself die the room will start over again because there's no other you mentioned about the randomization well the randomization engine has nowhere else to go when you've completed all the other rooms it will not play a room again so if you've already completed it you're done so it plays the dragon's lair again and you continue to play and again get to the last move where you're about to kill the dragon and don't press the sword button and then finally on your last man assuming that it's a a three player configuration which most of them were um, you could set it to five but very few people did Um, On your third man, then you finally kill the dragon. And because you get points for every single move that you make uh, in the game, and you don't lose points for the incorrect moves, that will give you a perfect score, because you'll accumulate all the points for all the extra moves you made in the
0: same room. You finish the game, all of a sudden there's two things that come out. The sequel, Dragon's Lair 2, and a space version of it. Which path do you want to choose? Can you see what I did there. <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that's good. Well, unfortunately, it was a bit of a weird thing that happened for for the developers. They uh, basically just as Dragons Lair was coming out into the arcades, uh, Space Ace was already in in the works, and uh, this time it was actually you know Dragons Lair was designed by. Uh, a guy named Rick Dyer originally. It was his concept, part of a larger story. Uh, Bluth and Goldman and and John Pomeroy, they were the ones who led the animation team. Space Ace was more of Don Bluth's idea. It was uh, his concept and mostly his ideas, although Rick Dyer did continue to work on it. Cinematronics made the machine uh, and everything else. They showed it um, publicly first, about five months after Dragon's Lair had been in the arcades, released it about eight months afterwards, and even by the time they released that, uh, of course, the animators were already working on the next game, which was Dragon's Lair 2. And uh, they figured by you know, having Dragon's Lair uh, 1 in the arcade for at least a full year to 18 months, that would give it enough time to make its money. And um, it was a runaway success, the dra- original Dragon's Lair was. But even by the time Space Ace came out, arcade business which had already been kind of flailing at the time uh had been bumped up by dragon's lair but
0: then even it was beginning to fade again and so space so, a- so was was dragon's lair maybe that blockbuster similar to movie theaters that kind of kept the the, the income coming during a yeah, like, good it, part of it the year it did it did do that for them but unfortunately it wasn't
1: enough to save the entire business mm-hmm. And also, you know, people got kind of tired of the Laserdisc games because once you figured it out, you know, unlike other arcade games at the time, you know, like you mentioned games get faster and whatever. If you could finish Dragon's Lair, you'd put your money in and then that was it. It was done. You finished it and it was game over and that was the end of it.
0: And because it was mostly a memorization game, once you figured it out, you figured it you out figured not, it out, It's yeah. like going back to that King of Khan, the guy taking the marker and drawing on the screen for the particular level where the yeah. move points were. Exactly. He was training himself one level
1: at yeah, a time. Yeah, because there was consistencies and that's how they learned to, to beat it. Now, what happened with Dragon's Lair 2 is that they got the game around 90% animated and about 70% colored. When Cinematronics filed for bankruptcy, which is the company that makes actually produced the games, uh, in March of 1984. and they effectively halted the production of Dragons Lair 2. And in fact, at that point in time, the game sort of went into development hell and sat around for a number of years um, at that sort of, you know, 75%-ish uh, finished. Uh, and never came out during the... the sort of the, the height of the other games. So... 1983 was Dragon's Lair. 1984 was Space Ace. Even though Dragon's Lair 2 was there... And, and most of it was done. It sat there and it sat there. And then... Oddly enough... Nintendo came along. And they ponied up some money... To finish the game. And... Uh, but not a lot. They just kind of got... A, sort of the bare minimum... To get their name on it. Which... Uh, if you actually look at some of the early versions, it actually says copyright Nintendo on it, which is a strange thing. And um, But then they, they didn't do anything with it. It's almost like they bought it because um, what they wanted to do was they wanted to prevent it from coming out on some of the optical-based uh, game consoles that were coming out when they were still running on cartridge. Mm-hmm. And so we're
0: talking about the Xboxes, the original Xbox. Actually,
1: we're going back to even earlier that like Sega CD, like Got in it. that time period, like we're talking about in the mid-90s um, and original PlayStation, sort of in that time period. And then uh, a company called Leland, which was actually, you know, kind of a rebirth of cinematronics and some of the original arcade uh, companies, uh, they actually ended up, uh, finishing, uh, paying the original group to finish the game and they released it as a Laserdisc game even though it was many, many years later in 1991. So even though the game was sort of conceived uh, and put together and mostly finished in 1984, uh, it didn't actually see a commercial release until 1991.
0: Mm-hmm. And as you say, by then, the world of arcades... Had completely disappeared. Completely changed. So the one aspect of arcades, and I want to get it to the book next, but the one aspect to the arcade to me, and it's very similar as I mentioned earlier to the movies, uh, uh, the you know the the movie house or you know uh, famous players or whatever, where you're going for. Well, I can see it in 3D. I can see it on IMAX. Is there a place for? that that full immersion arcade that you can't have at your household or has the air like we're surrounded once again you know by your your video game collection you don't have to leave your basement to play every single game that's pretty much been out there there most of them are around us what would drive you to go back to an arcade and actually spend on a per usage basis a game
1: well, I think uh, a lot of times what Palladium does mm-hmm. in Mississauga is they've kind of got the right idea. They have things that uh, are kind of hard to duplicate at home. They have, for example, some of the racing games. Uh, not only do they have the... Driving seats that you can get into, but I mean, you can do that at home too. Mm-hmm. But they often hook up four, eight, or even more of them together so that you and all your buddies can actually race against each other and all have that full
0: car experience mm-hmm. um, in and, the same physical place. It's not as, yeah. as you could do that right over multiplayer, but right. you, you're not seeing the person you're not in Singapore, them. yeah, or, or. exactly. Um, and I think
1: there's going to be more and more immersion mm-hmm. with 3D and other things that uh, you know, sort of uh, you know, like. Actually, at the Science Center, they have this, uh, it's like a big uh, like a big gerbil uh, kind of ball or something like that where you run around in. Oh, so you're constantly um, able to move in all directions. Yeah, you're exactly, and you're, and you're doing virtual reality, yeah. so you have a headset on. You actually, it looks like you're walking, and we're getting close to holodeck stuff. We, we really are. are. I mean, you know, you're getting to that mode where you're walking and the scenery around you is changing and you actually feel like you're doing it. And uh, so I think those types of things are going to keep people going to a place like Playdium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a place where they have a lot of pinball machines. And those, most people, again, because of the size, pinball is really hard to duplicate uh, on uh-huh. a console. I mean, you can do it. it nothing beats the real thing. you yeah. know? So, I mean, yeah, and even I have one pinball machine. But I love to go to
0: Playdium or something like that where they have, like,
1: 15 or 20 and I could try different ones.
0: So this is what goes back to that mindset of go big or go home because if you go home, you got the gains, but yeah. if you want to go big, i.e. full immersion, virtual reality, uh, you know, uh, full-size guns, full-size cars, you know, full 3D experience, all of that, that cost of building that infrastructure really goes back to a renting model at that point in time because yeah. it's the only way to really be able to afford it. You're not gonna spend. Five grand just to play a game. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, some of us might. Some of us. So (laughs) I got to ask the question though: What's stopping you from having a Dragon's Lair arcade in 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 your in your collection? Um,
1: the first thing that stopped me having it was price. Uh, When I started looking for the machines, were very expensive. They're kind of still expensive today. I do have a MAME machine which has a licensed version of Dragon's Mm -hmm. Lair on it, and honestly provides just as great an experience as i would get with a machine um i do actually have i believe i still do have all the parts uh all the parts to build one so the only thing i'm missing really is the cabinet
0: see so, i think you you building your own would be the best best way to end that wouldn't it yeah and really there's
1: there's plans uh, online for you to be able to like cut out the plywood and just paint it black uh a little more to it than that but um I have the circuit board. I have the laser disc. I have the uh, laser disc player. I have the control. You know the scoreboard. I have the marquee, um, and I have the control panel. Where we put the joystick in and the button. I have all that stuff, and I have the side art. I have it all, um, so I could do it. It would just take a if lot. Only of <laughs> there was
0: someone that knew carpentry watching this podcast right now. <laughs> so let's talk about the book because I think there's two aspects. First of all, why a book? well because we're talking about dead arcade games and, <laughs> and an era long gone and a lot of people think coffee books or coffee table books are long gone as well and i would it be fair to say that it, it's classified as a coffee a coffee table book? yeah i
1: think everyone who's looked at it has kind of felt that way it's certainly not the type of book that you read from beginning to end unless you're really really into the subject matter it's more a case where you pick it up and you you look through certain sections and it's divided up into all kinds of different sections um Why? Well, you know, I think it all started out, I have a a website that I had sort of dedicated to all different versions of Dragon Slayer, and I have collected all these versions over the years, the home editions, and I just love them all, and I thought, you know what, it'd be really nice if there was a website where you could look at all of them. That was my original thought. So I started to build that website, and then like a lot of things, you know, it kind of, I got interested in it for a while, and then I put it away, and... Got interested in it for a while, and then I put it away, and then eventually um, I began to realize that, you know, there's a lot of people visiting the site. And when I say a lot of people, I mean I, I was consistently surprised that there was probably a hundred people going to the site every day consistently, and I was like, you know, I, I'm surprised there's still this many people that are into this. Like, it just, you know, and sometimes there'd be even more. And so, especially for a site that I didn't really advertise, didn't have great SEO, it was just something that I just sort of put together and didn't really think much about it. So, I got to thinking that it'd be kind of neat if there was a book that sort of chronicled all of the different versions, and there's more than just versions. There's merchandise, there's there's toys, there's clothing, there's magazine articles, there's all this stuff. And I started thinking that, you know how much I would love to have a book like that myself, to read, to look at. And so I just decided, you know what? Why don't I do it? And of course, the way I look at things like this is that I'm always looking to the future. So I, I came up with sort of a concept and the, the name, which is collecting for Dragon's Lair and Space Ace. And I decided that collecting for... uh could be just sort of the beginning of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a great collection. I thought, why not leverage that collection and use it in other ways? Same thing with my Xbox. You know, I have all the Xbox games, so I could make a book about that. I could make a book about the VIC-20. I could make a book about the Commodore 64. Any kind of retro, cool gaming project that I was interested in, there's got to be other people interested in it And the it nice as well. thing,
0: too, is every single one of these projects becomes SEO for the Personal Computing Museum as well. Exactly. So... Basically,
1: I started out thinking that I had pretty much all there was to have in Dragon's there, and I could start scanning them and putting them into the book. When I started doing research, I found out how wrong I was (laughs) uh, and that actually there were all kinds of versions I didn't have. So I started uh, looking on eBay, purchasing a lot of them, scanning them, and then just started to go to international sites and realize there's even more versions I didn't know about. And even to this day, um, I did cut off the book, obviously, at a certain point. But I know, I know there's versions out there that I haven't found yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the research part of it was obviously the longest, as it often is with these kind of projects. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. It was you know, a little tiring. Sometimes, you know, you just kind of wanted to get to get to it, get to the writing. and uh, But you don't want to do too far ahead because then you might have to fix something. And one of the good things about the fact that it is a coffee table book and it's not really linear was that I could actually start on a certain section like I actually started on the magazine section before I started on any of the games Uh, for some reason I just thought I'm going to try doing these magazines and see what happens Um, and then I ended up having to go back to it but that's actually where I got started and uh, of course I finished Dragons there first and I found myself dragging through some of the Space Ace stuff because I'm like okay I've already done this. So
0: was the original plan to have Space Ace part of it?
1: Well, the thing with Space Ace is that it's not big enough to be on its own. It's typically sold about half of what Dragon's Lair has. And I figured that it added a bit more bulk to the book. I was kind of worried in a way that the book wouldn't be
0: big enough. I'm looking Um, at it right now. It's big enough.
1: Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's big enough. It's got a lot in it. And actually, you know, there's more I could have added. But again... You gotta cut it off at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two games have just, I mean, there's a Dragon's Dark Trilogy, which contains all three games. It would actually look kind of weird if it wasn't there. Mm. So, I mean, certainly there's other Laserdisc games, but these three kind of all just go together. It's that iconic grouping,
0: if you will. Yeah. Uh, now, you mentioned you started looking international. You came across a lot of people in the process as well, other collectors, you know. You thought you were the only one with, the, <laughs> with, with, with this, you know, this world. Well, I was really surprised to find out how passionate
1: some of the other collectors are. There's a guy from Belgium who, you know, he drove, uh, you know, from Belgium to the UK to pick up machines. He, he has a website dedicated to this and, and finding other fans around the world and letting people discuss the game. I found a really interesting guy in Australia Uh, Who I actually inadvertently ended up bidding against for one of the versions of Dragon's Lair, as we both found out. Uh, So ended up paying me, uh, or ended up making me pay a lot of money (laughs) for a particular version we both wanted. Uh, Just awful. Um, That was bad. And uh, just, uh, you know, other collectors around the world, Uh, there's one guy in the UK who uh, is a celebrity over there, Uh, he's a BMX Trials guy, and uh, he's retired now, but, uh, you know, quite a popular athlete over there, and uh, he just loved Dragon Slayer, and he actually at one point had... Uh, the largest collection of Dragon's Lear Machines. He had about 20 of them 20 different variants in his basement and uh, just amazing what he had and uh, unfortunately he he changed to a different home after he retired and had to give up a lot of the collection but um, you know just some really cool people and so yeah I chronicle some of those in the book and we'll also as time goes on for people that didn't make it in the book uh, we're going to be featuring them on our website so the book, although it's done now and it's printed and it's done as is the typical print thing, like it's sort of a static thing at that point, um, things will evolve on the website and people will be able to see different stuff from there. And and if the demand warrants it, I may do a second edition of
0: the book. So to your point, the website becomes a compendium, the ad- the additional yes. stuff, the the... the It continues on from that point forward.
1: Yeah, and really one key thing for collectors, I mean, I consider there's going to be people that buy the book because it's about Dragon's Art. Then there will actually be people that buy the book because they want to see what they can collect. And for those people, there are checklists on the website that you can download. Uh, They're PDFs, you can use them either electronically or you can print them out and just check off what you have. And it'll tell you what you're missing, so that I should write a store or something like that. And it even gives you the UPC code, so you can say, you look at the package and see, is this the one I'm missing or not? And, um, yeah, for those, and that also is a way of, if I did miss something, it's really, really easy to update
0: the website mm-hmm. and put a new checklist on, even if the book doesn't have the details. Yeah. Um, we're looking at these little eye-cates. Yes. Okay, and I think this is a fitting way to end the podcast. <laughs> Describe that for someone that can't physically see what that is. So there's two versions of the iCade, the regular
1: iCade and the iCade Junior. And what they are is essentially uh, a little miniature uh, arcade cabinet. And the one is designed to work with the iPad. You could also use it with uh, really any other kind of tablet tablet. Um, you know if you wanted to but it's designed initially for uh the ipad and it basically has a little cradle and you set it in and what it is is there's no wires uh it does take some batteries but it uh, is really essentially a bluetooth keyboard that's how it works technically but what it looks like is an arcade machine and it has a, a really nice quality arcade stick it has uh eight buttons on it And a lot of times, you know, the buttons are used for player one, player two, and then the other things are used for fire buttons or whatever. But really, uh, it doesn't really matter what kind of game you have or have had in the arcade. Like, the eight buttons pretty much covers it. And each button press, from a technical perspective, just simply produces, like, a key press. But because they are nice arcade-style buttons and an arcade-style joystick, it really makes you feel like you're playing Yeah, exactly. And, um so a lot of developers have adopted support for the iCade uh, if you look for the iCade website you'll find a list of all the games that do support it but for example you know there's a, a collection of Atari classic games and they all support it um, and the mini uh, or the iCade Junior uh, is designed to be used with the iPhone so it's used for really really you know a smaller device so which we all know the iPhone is just kind of a little mini iPad anyways and uh, yeah they're very very cool products mm-hmm. um, you can often get them on sale for uh, like the regular arcade. I think I've seen it as low as uh, sixty bucks, yeah. and uh, the junior, you know, thirty forty. And uh, they're really really great products. They're they're made by Ion, and Ion does a lot of audio products. And they're well manufactured. Um, you can get them actually, I think locally, like Future Shop and Staples carry some of the products, and then also if you're just an online kind of person, uh, thinkgeek.com is a great place to go and and find them, and uh, they often have sales. That's where I got mine.
0: I gotta tell you, it's it's definitely modular in the sense that once the iPad is able to play whichever game, it it becomes, as you say, that emulator, and it's a nice docking station for the emulator. Mm -hmm. I want to add one thing. You had a very interesting birthday present recently (laughs) upon release of your book. Care to share that?
1: Yeah, I got the the process of the book was was interesting. And one of the things that that we did and a strategy that we did was we didn't really talk to the creators of Dragon's Lair uh, beforehand until the book was basically done. And I wanted to get their blessing, but I wanted to make sure that I got their blessing when the book was complete and they could see how much love and passion was put into it uh, as well as hard work and research. And so uh, the day before my birthday, I got a phone call from Gary Goldman and uh, Gary was one of the uh, co-creators of Dragon Slayer and uh, you may not recognize his name but you certainly probably recognize the films that he worked on he worked on uh, the land before time which went on to have many many sequels uh, he was a co-director with Don Bluth uh, he also did uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, he did Anastasia, uh, and there's just there's a whole list of movies that he worked on. Uh, there's movies he worked on when he was at Disney, and then of course stuff that he went on to do on his own. Uh, the Secret of Nim is one of my favorite, and also uh, Titan A.E. is actually a pretty interesting movie if you haven't seen that one. But anyway, Gary called me, and uh, we had a good chat, a full hour and a half, and we talked about all kinds of things. Of course, Dragon's Lair, we talked about the book, he loves the book, he thinks it's great, he's very very pleased with it. Um, He somehow managed to find the only typo that was left. I don't know how he did that, but gosh darn it, he did. But that's okay. Uh, It makes for a better product. And uh, yeah, he told me some great stories. Stuff that, uh, you know, unfortunately you can't really print Mm -hmm. in a book. But there's always great stories behind the scenes. He told me about working with uh, Steven Spielberg. And just some of the interesting stuff about his career. And for me to be able to talk to somebody who created a game that meant so much to me as a, a young person i was 12 years old when dragon's Lair* came out and it had such an influence on my life i mean if we look 30 years later now uh it's still having an influence on my life and to be able to talk to one of the people that created it was an absolute and true gift
0: and yeah, be no different than george lucas calling you to talk about star wars Ah, George. I have a few things to say to George. <laughs> how yes. can, for those that are interested in getting the
1: book, how can they get it? So if you go to the website collecting4.com, you can order it uh, there. That gets ordered sort of uh, through us. It's a little bit more beneficial to us uh, money-wise, but... If you uh, want to sort of take the easy and known route, you can also go to Amazon. Uh, when we're recording this, it's not quite ready, but by the time you probably get to listen to it, it will be. Uh, so just go to Amazon.com and uh, do a search for collecting for Dragon's there, Or even if you search for Dragon's Lair, I'm sure there's not that many books on Dragon's Lair on Amazon. I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, and, of course, it's uh, published in 2013. It's certainly the only product in the universe that's available in
0: 2013. And that's not your only book on Amazon right now. You also have another one as well. Yes,
1: I have a book called uh, Mastering Social Media and uh, it's also become available electronically recently, so if you want to save a few bucks you can download it. The Collecting for Dragons book is currently only available as a physical book uh, but we may make it available as an electronic edition in the fall. Mm -hmm. Reintroduce yourself. I'm Sid Bolton from the Personal Computer Museum. And the URL for that would be? Collecting4.com and the PC Museum is
0: PCMuseum.ca. And I'm Robert Levine, your social business mentor. Thanks again, Sid. This is your fifth and I'm sure we'll have to come up with another topic to talk about because these are always interesting and fun to have. So once again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Social Business Hangout. My name is Robert Levine, and you can reach me at socialbusinessmentor.com. The Social Business Hangout podcast series is available on iTunes. This podcast was recorded in Brantford, Ontario, front of a live audience on July 24, 2013. I'd like to thank my guest, Sid Bolton, and please check out Collecting4.com.